Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Bonnie Calora is an artist born in Long Island who currently lives, works, and teaches in central Pennsylvania. Bonnie makes sculptures of various materials that often approach the figure with an element of abstraction. She received her BFA from the Virginia Commonwealth University in 1994 and her MFA from Yale University in 1996. She's the recipient of the 1997 Emerging Artist Award from the Aldrich Museum of Contemporary Art, a 2003 Rolex Protégé nomination, a 2005 Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship, a 2010 United States Artist Fellowship nomination, and a 2010 McDowell Colony Fellowship. Bonnie's sculptures, drawings, and outdoor works have been exhibited in domestic and international galleries and museums spanning the United States, France, Italy, Belgium, Germany, and India. Her work has been reviewed in the New York Times, The New Yorker, Art Forum, Art in America, Art News, Flash Art, Bomb Magazine, Beautiful Decay, Tema Celeste, and several other print and online publications. Bonnie is currently an associate professor at Penn State University, teaching in the sculpture department. I met up with Bonnie to talk about her early childhood, her days in school, her time working as an assistant for Robert Gober, and her recent work. Here's our conversation. start things off. I know a lot about you and your work. I feel like the recent history of you and your work, but I don't know a lot about your early days. So can you tell me about where you grew up? Um, well, I grew up in Port Jefferson in Long Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and my father was a mechanical engineer. He went to RPI for mechanical engineering, and he was the first person in our family that had got a, a college degree. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandparents uh, immigrated here from Italy. Um, and I guess he had a good knack for managing, and he uh, was recruited um, by Akfa Gavart to the film company. Um, and I guess because he had taken a more um, sort of management role, um, he was in a position, and we, as a result, were in a position to move around a lot. Mm-hmm. So my parents have moved around about 26 times. Um, so my... You know, when I was young, I lived in Long Island, but we lived in many different places. Um, so you moved around a lot. Were you, when you moved, were you moving for a long amount of time, or was it short stints? Um, they were short stints. So there was, well, we would move to three different places in one town, mm-hmm. like over like three years, and then we would move. After, then we moved from Long Island to New Jersey, and then from New Jersey to Virginia. And then 
and then after that I was in I went to college and I kind of moved around as as many people do on their own um, so I think that um, experience of going into a new place and uh, feeling both awkward and somewhat liberated uh, you know you obviously uh, get intimidated by trying to meet a bunch of new people but at the same time um, you kind of lose a lot of baggage from where yeah. you were um, so that, I think that really shaped a lot of my upbringing um, sort of not being when not being sure when uh, we would be told that it was time it was time to move in fact my parents moved so much that um, they kept the boxes numbered and they had a oh, they geez. had a, they had a notebook with with the numbers right. that corresponded to the things you would put in those boxes so you got used to it yeah you kind of got used to it sort of was you kind of would hear phrases like if the market was good mm-hmm. then that was like oh boy Right. We're probably going to move soon. Was it stressful? Um, I think it was stressful when I was younger. I think after a while it became frustrating more than stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's not much I could do about it. Yeah. So you just sort of, I guess, roll with the punches. But it, I think it did, it, it, it did make me more introverted. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you couldn't have, like, long-term friendships, right? Because you would... Yeah, it was sort of... Obviously, this is before social media yeah. or, like, um, quick ways of keeping in touch with people in long distance. Yeah. So I think that was, you know, sort of... Um, there was a little bit of resistance of getting really um, a- attached to friendships, yeah. not being sure when we would move around. But, of course, I, I, of course I had friendships uh, over time. But there will be sometimes when I'm thinking about... Um, the friends that I've had in different places and I have to spend some time to remember was that in New Jersey was that in Long Island like no that was an elementary school friend so that must be Long Island or that was a junior high school friend that must be in New Jersey or that was a high school friend that must be in Virginia Um, so I think there is something about that um, moving around like that that contributed to an interest later in sort of making um, sort of net-like connections between seemingly disparate bits of information. Yeah. Um, Just trying to piece things together. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have siblings? I do. I have a brother. I have an older brother. His name's Dennis, mm-hmm. and he uh, he makes functional lighting, really beautiful uh, lights, and um, he. Uh, lived in Brooklyn with his wife for a long time, and now they live in in Pound Ridge, New mm-hmm. York, and we're very close. So um, he kind of was my comrade in the hurricane of moves. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like, dude, the family is just it's makers. Like, you know, was that from early on? Were you just building and making things and kind of into into that? And obviously, what your your dad did seemed, you know, seems like it was very much about creative making things or, or being involved in, con, you know, constructing things? He's incredibly analytical and mm-hmm. very much, um, you know, kind of a hard-nosed business sort of person. Um, my mom is creative, and she comes from a family 
of masons and other people that have a lot have done a, a lot of creative things. Um, I'm not quite sure why my brother and I are such strong makers. I think part of it is just, I think, a little bit of rebelling, re, you know, rebelling from um, things, and part of it is uh, just kind of to escape from stuff. Yeah. Did you have, like, a, an art teacher or a moment when you were younger that um, sort of turned you on to being creative? I know a lot of people either go to a museum or they have a great teacher or there's something that kind of triggers that interest. And it, at first it might be latent, and then later on they kind of refine that, whether it's high school art or, you know, just counterculture or whatever it is, you know? My... Most pressing memory of an art class or something that had made me want to pursue art in a different way than than previously. I mean, I always took art classes and I felt like, you know, people thought that I was doing good in them, so I guess that's why I liked them. Yeah. But when we moved to, um, when we moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, I was taking an art class and I was new the school and um, I I came home and my mom was looking at me strangely um, and I was sort of like what's the problem she's like the school called today and your art teacher is really concerned about you I'm like what for she's like because she says that you keep ruining your a projects so we had to make um, we had to make homemade paper, mm-hmm. and um, we made it into a box. And I guess I thought that was really boring, so I cut it or ripped it apart and made something else from it. And and also I had to draw a self portrait, and I. After I drew it, I cut it up, mm-hmm. and and I reconfigured the portrait, and I guess she was disturbed by this, mm-hmm. and it really made me angry because I was like, "This is an art class, right? Why, why shouldn't I be doing those types of things? Like, You're I'm coloring not, outside the lines. I'm not like right? cutting up people, right? You know, I mean, it's <laughs> it was so it was so strange to me that I I felt more connected to me I was like I, I wanted to make more art now yeah because I feel like I, I can make it it's, it's okay to do that um, so that I remember that very very distinctly yeah um, art class isn't where you go to be contained or like you know to have to it, it seems like the place where you want to work outside the box or be creative yeah exactly not have to just you know fill in the blank so that must have been mixed messages from an early age. Yeah, no, very much so. And just the fact that there was sort of this this sort of uh, careful uh, caution, of like, are you okay? Yeah. Sort of that, you know, you you had an A. Why would you Why would you then rip that A up? Right. A project up and make something else out of it. Well, if you weren't rebellious before then, yeah, that probably planted another seed, right? I mean, I I think so. It was sort of like. I also just was really interested in just reshaping these flat things. Yeah. And so, you know, 
I don't, I had not taken like a formal sculpture class at mm -hmm. that point, but I can see now that it was also, I was just interested in moving things around in space. Yeah. Um, what is like two different kind of reactions you could have to something like that? Just clam up and then, you know, be afraid of working in that venue, or you could just say, that's not right, and you plow through and just go, you know, all out. It sounded like it, it's lucky in the sense that you were able to just know that that wasn't the right thing and to just, you know, break out of that. I guess so. I think because we had moved around so much, you're always kind of put in a position where people are getting to know you and they don't know everything about you, especially, you, uh, you know, when you're young, you don't know everything about yourself either. Right. So um, kind of going with what your intuition says seems like it was it was more like let I think my reaction to that was first this is ridiculous and then um, I want to see how much more I could push it but it I think it was more um, steered by an intuition that I'm not quite sure what's going to happen but I want to keep changing things than, than uh, like a specific sort of like, I, I'm going to rebel and I'm not going to do this or that. Um, but that was, that's my, in terms of my early uh, experience with art classes, that's the one that really stood out. Yeah. Um, that's the one you remember. <laughs> that's the one I remember. Uh, but I didn't want to, I mean, I always took art classes and I didn't want to be an artist. Yeah. Did you go to museums and, you know, we're going to see artwork or my family brought us to museums once in a while but mm -hmm. not very often I sort of uh, had this idea of what artists were and you know just these stereotypes of what what artists were and I didn't think that I would want to do that um, I went to Virginia Commonwealth University for in, I thought I was gonna uh, focus in interior design and um, they had classes where there was like these plastic stencils that you would like draw out a oval for a sofa, whatnot. And I was like, this is not going to happen. I was going to say, how did that go over? It's not going to work. Yeah. And I took foundation classes and I had a class with Elizabeth King, mm -hmm. who's a really great sculptor. And she, um, she was so fascinating to me. She was incredibly smart and really articulate but very uh, funny and accessible mm -hmm. um, and so animated. Her, her face and her micro expressions would crinkle and cackle and she was so fascinating to watch. And I just wanted to be around her more. Yeah. I think that's so, you know, that's, that happens a lot. Like you're not quite sure what you want to do, but somebody has created an environment where energy um, is encouraged, mm -hmm. and that becomes infectious. Yeah, you want to be around that. Yeah, and that it's funny that you think, oh, it's just a subject that that you're drawn yeah. to, but really the environment, if it's a welcoming environment, like if you mm -hmm. have. When I was in high school, my AP bio teacher was really, like, he was like that, really animated, funny, weird, would make, like, you know, these, like, 
really out of line or like not your high school teacher kind of comments. It was intriguing, you know, his energy was really dynamic and we loved going to that class because you just didn't know what was going to happen next. And I ended up going to school for pre-med just because of that. And then when I got into pre-med, I realized, wait, he's not there anymore. That energy's not there anymore. And uh, I was just out, you know, I didn't want to do that. But the environment can really have a big effect on where you go, you know. Oh, absolutely. Like what direction you follow. Because it's it's really the energy, almost more than anything in the beginning, that draws you into it. Absolutely. So you switched basically from interior design to an art major after that class? I did. I I asked, where do you teach? And she said, I teach in the sculpture area. So then I I tried to enroll in classes with her, but they were all full. Mm -hmm. And then I I started taking classes, um, and I didn't realize... Um, that I was going, I was starting one of the best sculpture programs in the country. Yeah. Uh, and it was... Happy uh, accident? It was. It was. I mean, BCU uh, was sort of... Um, it was n- not the, the brand name that it is today uh, in terms of uh, sculpture and extended media. They were really starting out um, we, the program was in an, an old, um, it's called the Meridian Building. It was an old automobile um, facility. And my teachers were just extraordinary. They were so, they were, they loved sculptures so much, and they were all so different. Mm-hmm. They had such unique personalities that now as a teacher, and just thinking about, you know, tenure and the tenure track and assessment, I almost feel like, gosh, how could they have all been so weird <laughs> and get away with it? Different um, times, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And they, I just, it, they just created a community where I felt like um, I, I belonged. Yeah. So it became, it was like a really great way to feel at home, you know, finally, mm-hmm. after being kind of pushed around lots of lots of locations um, and that was that it was it was I feel really lucky that my connection to sculpture was so immediate and so um, irrefutable yeah what was your work like when you were starting to find your own voice in undergrad um, really bad just uh, very much maker based but that's also the emphasis of that's of the school right um building based and um very narrative based uh, i remember once i made a sculpture that kind of looked like some couple of pairs of wacky flamingos it was all carved out of wood and diff- all different colors and my teacher lester van winkle said that that my piece needed to have some sex in it and i was like what <laughs> How, how inappropriate! Like, what does that mean? Uh, and then, I I later kind of understood like it was too like it needed an edge. It needed something, um, or it needed to be maybe less less polite or something. I don't know actually what he meant, but I remember it a lot. Um, it needed to be charged a little bit. Yeah, probably. yeah. That's just, like <laughs> sometimes when I talk about music, like you like. 
I like music or when we in the band I was in we would talk about the music having to have some ass to it like some low end okay like right. you know some connection to like funk or like or mm-hmm. some backbeat you know but it gives it an ed- it like ties it to something else maybe right. he was kind of you know working that angle or something yeah it's interesting that both examples like you know connect to the body, the body like yeah well, you shake your butt when you dance. Yeah. You know, funk makes you move your butt. That's that right. sort of relationship, right. you know. But yeah, the sex thing is funny. I mean, yeah, maybe it, sexy or in the sense of like something that allures you to it. You right, know? exactly. And so, I mean, I think that was, there were always things about um, working in sculpture that it was sort of like, well, how, how could I get that? You know, mm-hmm. how, what could I do now? Or could I do this? Or how could that happen? Or... And also, you just the program is so large. Um, you're seeing so many people build things, and and you're seeing graduate students, and there's the whole mystique of that. That it just was a it just was an amazing um, moment uh, to be learning about um, you know myself as a maker. Which is yeah. a, they they built just an amazing community. I'll always be indebted to the energy they gave that program. Yeah, and they're kind of, they're known for that program. I mean, were they, was VCU pretty distinct about their areas? It's like the painters were off somewhere else, the sculptors. So you were kind of in sculpture land. Yeah, the Meridian Building was sculpture, and we were sort of uh, in a different part of campus um, than painting was. Um, There... I don't know if ceramics was in close proximity to the Meridian Building, uh, but it was all they were all very in different places. Yeah. So we were kind of like, you know, the machismo scul- sculptors, kind of off, off on our own, across from Hardee's, <laughs> doing weird stuff. Conveniently located. <laughs> yeah. And that continued when you went into grad school too. Yeah. Because I know that landscape was. Yeah, Hammond Hall is also far was away. Very far away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Frustratingly, to some, you know. Well, anyway, so, so you had a good undergrad experience. Did you? How did you decide? Okay, I'm going to grad school. Did you go right away, or what was that process? I did go right away. I, um, I think the collective energy that VCU provided. Um, I just did not want to stop. Um, making and um, and I also think this was a kind of a time so I went I got went into grad school in 1994 and when I was thinking about what would I do was more I'd ask my professors and I, I wouldn't even the concept of residencies wasn't even in my mind mm-hmm. and so it was really based on what you know what they thought I would go to the library I would like take out magazines and look at schools that way and um can you imagine like we had to figure out schools based on like asking people like what are some good schools to go to and you couldn't really research it no it's true <laughs> there's no I, internet i remember there was like an art news magazine that had like 50 like the 50 top art programs yeah, something like, like a that small paragraph on each program like the yeah. mission statement or something mm-hmm. but that was pretty much it or you could ask friends, like people you know who knew people who went there. But not like now where it's just, you know, giant websites with pictures, videos, and visiting artist lists and all that stuff. It's, it's no, different. No, absolutely. 
absolutely nothing like it is now, obviously. And so I really just sort of would, you know, ask my professors and, um, and also I was, I liked the idea of, um, uh, of being the first person in my family to get a, a graduate degree. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I went straight straight from uh, undergrad to grad, and I think that had advantages and disadvantages. I don't think I had really. I think I went into grad school pretty, pretty young and yeah. uh, uh, fairly, fairly nervous. <laughs> didn't have much life experience. Right. And I didn't bring any any of that kind of uh, skill to the the cohort. Um, but. Um, but it, it, is, it was what it was. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, six in one hand, half dozen in the other, I think. You know, you, what you don't have in life experience or confidence in speaking or, you know, like those kind of the right. social abilities, I think, you gain in energy, recklessness, and just, you know, hunger and, you know. You know what I mean? It's, I feel like I went right after, and I don't even know if it would have been good if I went to graduate school with a lot more knowledge or a lot more experience mm-hmm. because I think I would have fought back more or countered things more instead of just diving right in and taking it all in. And then after like 10 years of slowly spitting out the things that I didn't need, you know what I mean? You kind of mm-hmm. like purge out and then find your own voice in a way. Right. I wonder, I mean, you never, no one ever knows. And that question is really interesting. It's like, do you go right into grad school or do you take time? No one knows because for everyone it's different. And you will never know because you either go right away or you don't, or you go later and you don't know what the other is like. No, it's true. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think clarity is hard earned and I don't, I'm not um, trying to imply that I had clarity in undergraduate school with the decision to go to graduate school, but I felt more certain about it than not. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the important feeling. If you feel like you will, if you feel compelled, like I'm really excited about this possibility, even though I might get rejected, I might not get in, I might I might do a bad job. I'm still really excited about it. Yeah. Then I think you should go. You should. And then, but if you're sort of feeling like this is something I'm unsure of, or this seems like something that other people want me to do, then I, then that's information too. Yeah. But for me, I was just, I, I did cling on to that, like, this really feels like this, this is something I, I want to do. Um, you know, I got a third job and had, you know, my photographs taken by a great photographer, mm-hmm. Terry Brown, and, um, and applied to nine different schools. And Nine? Wow, that's, that's a good amount. Yeah, it was. And I got into schools I didn't never thought I'd get into, and mm-hmm. I didn't get into schools that I thought were my... <laughs> where my safety is. Welcome to the rest of applying yeah. for whatever it is exactly. for the rest of your life, right? You yeah. always tell students that. It's like, just apply to everything and you might get the th- last thing you think you will and then there's other things you think are a sure shot and you don't even get a call back. So it's so true. It's just the way it works. Yeah. Um, so you were pretty excited and you went to New Haven? I went to New Haven for my interview. As you know, like, yeah. you experienced the same thing and... Um, my brother met me. My brother was living in New York at the time, and he met me in the train. Um, Did you have to take work? Did it work the same way? 
I didn't take work. I took my slides. Okay. I took my carousel of slides. We had to take work. You we did? had to take, yeah, like roll up paintings and bring them, like big paintings. What if, what if you were coming from far away? I don't know. They didn't care. You just had to show up with work. I stuffed mine in the car and rolled all my paintings, rolled them all up. I'm sure I did a shitty job at it and then just stuck them in the back of my car and, and drove there. But yeah, you had to bring stuff. And, and so hang you, it. you you are you hanging when other other interviewees are also hanging their work? No, they I don't know. They staccatoed it in oh. different there were two different interview there were two interviews or viewers per person and then they would do alternating rooms, I think, or something. Oh. But yeah, you wouldn't see the other people. Interesting. But but the other the painting the painting grads weren't part of it for you? No. Your interview? Oh. They weren't. Okay, so for me, uh, there was all the sculpture faculty, or the, the permanent faculty, mm-hmm. and then all of the grad students were at my interview. That's the way, and that's the way that when I became a student, there when we gave when we had interviews, mm-hmm. um, the whole the whole room, the, all of sculpture was in there. Yeah. No, we had two faculty, and that was it. And then the, the first years, a couple of the first years would help you bring work in or like sign you in or whatever but yeah there's no one else in that room but the two faculty nerve-wracking yeah <laughs> and when I was you know in between my my second year I became one of the two students who was chosen to go through the process of seeing how they look through the slides and do all that okay and then you know you had a voice I'm not sure what percentage of the vote that counted for but we could choose you know Right. Or we had our say on in who was going to be accepted. Yeah, same. It wasn't, I don't think it, I'm pretty yeah. sure that was like a 2% <laughs> share of, but, you know, we were involved in the process, which was good. Yeah. Learn how to, like, do the slides right and mm-hmm. understand the mistakes you made, you know, or could make when applying to things. It was the same as sculpture. Yeah. Um, and then also being present for the interviews. So watching, watching, being on the other end, watching other people for mm-hmm. the interviews sort of, I think, was a really uh, a great way to sort of have empathy for that, for that moment. <laughs> yeah, you know? definitely, definitely. The nerves of that, you know, you're so nervous. I remember being so nervous. I don't know how I performed under that. <laughs> I was extremely nervous. I met my brother and... He, I had a, I had like a blazer on, and I saw my brother, and he had a leather jacket on, and I start, I'm like, I don't look cool, I don't look cool at all, <laughs> I, I look terrible. Did you borrow his leather and, jacket? And um, and I think I had, I think I threw up. I was so nervous. Oh my god, that's nervous. And um, and my brother let me wear his jacket. Nice. And so I, I'm sure I didn't look good either in this jacket, but um, I remember that really well. That's yeah. funny that you went from the suit jacket to the yeah. leather jacket. Yeah. That's tough. This <laughs> is really silly. But he's um, a good brother. But it went well. And how was your grad school experience? It's a tough question, I know, but... I'm really grateful for the education I got in the order that I got it in. You know, yeah. I feel like VCU was... Gave me a strong community. It, it was so... Um, it's so celebrated building. Um, and then, you know, Yale was really hardcore, and I had very little 
uh, critical issue or art history knowledge when I came in. And, uh, and I was very naive um, coming into the program. Um, but um, it was just the exposure to the artists that I had in that program I thought was phenomenal. And the, uh, it was very competitive. Um, and I think that it forced me to be like, how do I visualize myself you know, in the future? Do I wanna do this in the future? Do I wanna make sculpture in the future? Um, and how do I block out the noise? And how do I listen better to hear new things? Uh, which I think can, can, continues today, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so my Yale experience, um, I'm, I'm grateful for the education, but I was really happy when uh, graduation time came. Yeah. Um, I made some dear friends. Um, the first week I met Andy Harmon, mm -hmm. and he was sort of like, are you normal? And I was like, I think I'm normal. <laughs> and we talked about different banks that were giving out toasters, and we were like two peas in a pod. Mm -hmm. And when everything got really intimidating and kind of lots of power plays and political, he kind of was a really good, um, he just was a really good friend. Uh, and he was... Uh, he had gone to Kent State, and um, he's a really well-known. Um, uh, he does like um, set design for, uh, um, you know, big magazines now in New York, and he's really yeah. successful. Um, he's such a hardcore worker, so we were just like we were just balling as mm -hmm. workers. Yeah. And. Uh, and know. good visiting artists too, right? Yeah. I, I mean, mean, when I was there, sculpture had great visiting artists, and that was part of the problem. That was so far away at that point because I didn't have a call. You know, it was so segregated from the from the painting department that you really had to get over there. You know, but right. but great visiting artists. We did have a good visiting artist program. There were people that came in nine times a semester, then six times, and three times, mm -hmm. and then like you know, the one time, and you know, it was just. Having people come in your studio, they have, uh, they're not, I mean, they have no obligation or necessarily an interest, or I know I shouldn't say the interest, but they're not coming in it thinking like, at what stage of the process is this now? And how will I be seeing it two months from now? Like when you and I are, are dealing with our students, yeah. right? We're yeah. thinking about, how their work has grown or how it, in a very incremental way. Yeah. Um, it's like a linear progression yeah. and you're cognizant of like where they are in that ladder, you know? Very much so. And that relationship has roots or it, or you, you are, you, uh, you go into it knowing that you're going to be seeing them again mm -hmm. in some way, maybe multiple times. And these visitors, obviously they were coming in a much, less frequent capacity so they were very honest with exactly what they felt so having people come and be like I can't look at this work I don't want to look at this was sort of like whoa and then people also coming in um, were really supportive I mean that's how I met Robert Gover and then I, I worked for him after grad school yeah um, just being exposed to that range 
of reaction to your work, um, I think really forces you to sort of see common denominators. Yeah. You're like, okay, like there's so many people that are no, that are saying this one thing. That in itself, that pattern must have some validity. Mm-hmm. Um, how can I address? How can I address this more? Yeah. Or how do I? Or how do I defend it better? Um, I think that was a great asset to that program. Yeah, those visiting artists are really useful for that. They give you the cut and dry. Sometimes it's like shock and awe whenever you see students mm-hmm. who are like all of a sudden get that outsider point of view where they don't care. Like they're not emotionally tied to your to your you right. know progression and your achievements and how far you came since right. last year or whatever. They just come in and drop it, you know. And it's good to hear, you know, because that's really how people come to your work. I mean, obviously, when you're having a show, you feel like it's presented, like you're, it's in its presentation form, and you feel, you probably are pretty resolved about how it, it looks. But you know, when you when people come into the studio and, and they don't have any you know other things holding them back, they can just tell you like it is, and it's it's good to hear that once in a while. I think it's challenging in a way that makes you really want to to resolve your work and feel like, Absolutely. okay, this is speaking in the voice it needs to speak in. And if you don't like it, that's fine, but you know, you gotta get it up to that level. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I had a few of those visiting artists, mm-hmm. you know, um, who came in and just really, you know, knocked it. Although when, I feel like when I was in grad school, I got pretty much railed the whole time. I mean, not badly, but you know, there were a lot of the kind of painters who weren't like I was making stuff that was like abstract and digital looking and and they weren't really into that, you know? So it was a it was a good challenge, I think. But I worked all the time, so I think they felt like, well, he's working. Right. They respected that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's you know, the blue collar thing works mm. out in yeah. that sense. Same here. It's Same undeniable. Here. I was like, You may not like it, but you can't deny that I worked really hard on it, you know. So but that makes you better the more you work. So in a sense that's a good kind of defense mechanism. But then, like you're saying, two years after that, it's good to get out and you can exhale and then just do your thing. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I felt like, for me, I just, I just, I was, in the, between my first and second year, I was just becoming really cognizant of my debt. And I was like, wow, I better work my ass off because there's no guarantees for anything and I have to be able to look at look back at these two years and be like this is was completely worth that investment right um I'm always amazed that the people who come in and just chill out for a couple of years or you know some people who've been out of school for a while and they come back in and they're like oh I'm gonna just take it easy for a couple of years not work a crap job but like that's a really expensive two-year vacation no it is it's 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 I don't understand that. I don't. I don't either. I felt. I get. Um, I don't. It. It almost angers me. Mm-hmm. You know. Now, not only as an artist, but now, you know, as an educator, yeah. you're just sort of like, how? How are you not taking advantage of that? Like space and resources. Just seems like an insult to so many things. Also, being an artist. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a. It, it was a good experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you make the the post-graduation move straight down to the city? I did. It must I have been nice growing up or having some roots on Long Island that you felt, I'm sure, the city, well, I don't know, maybe, was it less daunting than 
you know, if you grew up in Iowa? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my mother's mother um, lived in Queens, mm -hmm. and um, I wouldn't go into the city a lot when we lived in New Jersey, but enough. Um, I had a lot of familiarity with the East Coast, so um, I was engaged um, when I was in graduate school, and so that the plan was that I would move to Los Angeles. Um, with my then fiance, mm -hmm. and then that kind of fell apart. So um, Andy and I, we decided that we would move. We would move to New York together, and mm -hmm. uh, um, he had a friend from Kent State, William Eden, who uh, designs for Cynthia Rowley, mm -hmm. um, and we all got a sublet in Soho, and we got a four-month sublet. And this was when Soho was filled with galleries. Yeah. And so... Um, Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid to say I do. Uh, and so it seemed like this was amazing. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, was, she was a yoga instructor, so there was a back room that had a rubber floor, and Andy and I put up a tarp between the two, and we had, like, our studios there, and we worked for... Um, Auto Tootsie Plowhound. Oh yeah, um, that we, place. We helped uh, build shoe stores, um, and that's sort of that's sort of how, how my my introduction to the city. Yeah. I, I I applied for all kinds of jobs. I couldn't get them. I got a job at Spathe Design. Oh, uh, Spathe. So yeah. you did window display stuff. Um, Brian Crockett um, was the. He had he was the head of something at Space Design, and so he he was um, a year ahead of us. Mm -hmm. I think he was a year ahead of us at Yale. So we kind of that was our in, and um, I wanted to work in the wood and metal shop. I was a good welder. Yeah. But they wanted me to sew. Mr. Fezziwig's bed, and I didn't know not know how to sew. <laughs> but I guess because they I was a woman, they felt that I should right. be sewing. So I got fired quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't work out? Didn't work out. You should have had you welding, those little animatronic window things. That's what I yeah. thought, too. Um, but no, I got, I got fired. And, uh, and then I, I was offered a job in the Upper West Side Gallery. And I was just about to take it. Um, actually, I did take it. But the, the week before I was supposed to start, um, then I got a call from the Gober Studio. Mm -hmm. And he asked if I could come in to uh, carve. Uh, he was having a problem getting these rocks carved. And he had done, when he came at Yale, I was, um, my assistantship at that for that semester was to um, meet the artists, pick them up, you know, make sure that yeah. they were taken care of that day, for the other day. And, um, and you know, I've always been pretty shy, um, so I would just keep to myself. And I think he really liked that because mm -hmm. there was a lot of people at Yale that were sort of like saying to the visiting artists, sort of like, "I've sh you know, I've shown, I've sold, sort of like this is what I do." Yeah. Um, and it's kind of a little ridiculous to Moving kind of say that right, to right. sort of Robert Gover, <laughs> sort of like, "Okay, dude," um, yeah. but. Uh, he was really generous with me, and 
he sent me a book on Snow White because I was referencing that in my my graduate my graduate work, and uh, I like everybody else after a graduation write like, dear Mr. Gober, I love you. If you ever need any help, and then he called and he said, I need some help. That's great. And I was like, oh my God, I just just took this job. I said, but I, I, I'll quit, I'll quit. And he's like, no, well, jobs are really hard to get in the city. I said, I don't care. And then I started uh, working for for his studio, and I worked there for about a year, year and a half, on the LA Mocha project. Mm-hmm. And that was a whole other education. Right. That You're seeing all sorts of, I'm like, how a studio works. How a studio yeah. works. I'm seeing how this person that was sort of just to me like this icon yeah. and then like the day-to-day right uh he had rented out a um a storage facility on 23rd street uh, uh by paula cooper but this is when very it was very barren it was still. all taxi like yes. you know car mechanics yeah. and taxi shops yeah and he had paid to get plumbing put into the um uh the mini storage space and uh we, I, my job was to carve rocks out of foam, and so they had made a, uh, they had a fabricator make a metal framed box that, that would fit um, the inserts into the concrete floor at LA Mocha. There were two different sizes. One was underneath the suitcases, one size, and one was underneath the Virgin. Um, and so most of my time in the studio, I was literally in a box. And so I was like in a box, like carving, carving, carving. And then I was, so I was like watching and listening to all kinds of things as I was in, in this box. And, um, and obviously I would get out of the box, but, uh, (laughs) and, uh, we we, we, were loud out. Yeah, I was loud out and he, he would have, the whole studio would have lunch and we would have, I, now I think it was because of union rules or something like that, but we would have breaks every three hours. He would like have we would have cookies. You guys were union. Um, I don't know if I was, but I think like someone was. I think Daphne might have been. Yeah. Um, Daphne Fitzpatrick mm-hmm. was sort of like the GC and the manager of of the whole thing. Um, and he he he, it just was you know he was really like that was the first time I sculpted anything for anybody's anybody else's eyes besides mine mm-hmm. it was so strange because I was like why would you want to make the rock like that I mean I, I didn't say that <laughs> right but that's what I was thinking I was like I don't know and but I would just do what obviously what he wanted and it took a long time to figure out like exactly what he wanted and then when I got one arrangement done which wound up being the one for the suitcases he kind of gave me a lot of play and I he kind of just let me Build the one, build the one more based on my intuition mm-hmm. for for the virgin, and then um, uh, we covered them in clay, and then they got molded, and then they got cast, and then he asked me to paint them, um, and I had never really painted much, so I was trying to think of how like these fiberglass rock box shells, like because they got they were being cast in Long Island how I could make them look not dead, like not fake. And uh, and I thought of how a rock is bound particulates 
And the, when the sun hits it, it's, it's hitting many little things, not just one big lump. Right. So I asked him to buy me all kinds of fluorescent colors, fluorescent green and pink and yellow and orange. And he was a little bit like, what? <laughs> and, but he's like, whatever. He yeah. did, he did, he, and he, he got what I asked for. And I just, they were like Berserko Technicolor rocks. And then I just started building up the, the grays and the, um, the tans on top of that. Mm-hmm. So that was really cool. Um, was he into it? He was into it, and later he had he had mentioned that he really was he couldn't believe that I had painted them like that, mm-hmm. and it was so strange because you know this is when pearl paint was still on Canal Street, right. and I remember walking to pearl paint, and there must have been on the bottom floor they had a lot of art magazines. Mm-hmm. You know, this was sort of like the dominant yeah. periodical, art mags, right? Yeah. Like no, no no blogs, no right. websites, and I remember seeing the rock boxes full-page cover ad mm-hmm. and look I looked at them and I had made I didn't make the seaweed or the uh, barnacles those were made by Sam Gordon but I made pretty much everything on that cover mm-hmm. but I had no connection to it right when I looked like you at didn't it feel like oh that's my stuff I, I, that's not at all not at all I was like oh look that's so look at that that, that's like look at that piece by Bob that's amazing yeah. of course it was his but right. it was just that was another thing that was really a great learning experience was like I had my hand all over that thing yeah but his vision was so strong and so clear like I remember for months I was in this box I had no no idea what the fuck were we doing yeah, yeah. and he had like this raised uh like this raised floor above where I was working, and the floor had a cutout, a mm-hmm. square cutout, and that simulated um, the concrete floor at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los oh, Angeles. Yeah. And and you would look the, the the cutout in the wood was representing the cutout that was on the bottom of the suitcases. And it was. Only until, like, I forget how many months it was when he would ask me to come up there and look through the aperture that I finally was able to understand how he was piecing all of these individual things I was seeing floating around, a really danky um, storage facility. And I was like, wow. You know, it came to get yeah. Like it was how like it comes I together. was finally able to like understand like this is the at- he, I I can see the atmosphere he's trying to create, mm-hmm. and I think that's why I had no connection when I looked at that. I when I looked at the cover, it was representative of such a grand and strong vision that I felt like I was just you know a small part. But I, no and way. You weren't even privy to the whole vision, right? No, no. So you're like, oh, that's what. Yeah. It became. Yeah. Because you didn't go install it. No, know? I wasn't. I wasn't part of the team that installed. In fact, when they were installing, he asked me to stay back in the New York studio and paint more additions. Yeah. Um, for uh, sales. For, <laughs> for sales. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you saw all that, which in a way that's interesting too. Like you were seeing. The entirety of the operation. I was, and that's a big operation. That's not like... I was seeing... La- I mean, he was getting stressed out about money, and there was um, 
the LA MOCA had given, um, I could have these details wrong, but I, I believe that there was $50,000 that came with the production. Mm-hmm. And um, he felt that he decided to give that money back because he didn't want controversy about like um, uh, Catholic groups making controversies about the, the Culver oh, Pike yeah. going through the Virgin mm-hmm. and it being tied to um, monies from the museum, you know. Right. So he, so there was all that that like I don't, I didn't know. Like I would never have known any of that stuff. I mean, and just it was also the way that he would work around things, mm-hmm. or and also uh, uh, under incredible amounts of pressure keep a studio going where other people had to stay creative you know like yeah. if and it was just so much I learned I mean I don't know I don't think I've had the opportunity to put those things in place for myself but they're it's just unbelievable yeah so I and he he was so generous to me when I, I had my first show when I was working for Bob mm-hmm. and I was so stressed out and I couldn't get, I didn't think I was going to fi- get finished on time. And he's like, well, your show comes first. Your show is happening first before mine. Yeah. Like, so you can take time off. He came and did, he gave me a studio visit. Oh, that's cool. You know, and I was yeah. like, you know, I was just a kid. Right. And I was like, this is amazing. That's good feedback. And I, sure. so I, I really, I mean, when I, ha- I don't have full-time assistance, but when I am able to pull people in, mm-hmm. like, um, to help on, different things that I need for different sculptures or videos. I try to remember that generosity. Like yeah. all, he was generous to me in many ways. And how important that is that the person that's working for you feels um, like a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm grateful to that. So yeah. you did have your first show while you were working there. How did you get hooked up with that? Um... I had a sh- I had a piece. It was called uh, Twenty Five Younger Artists." I forget the name of the gallery. Can't remember. Was it in Soho? Yeah. And was it between two galleries? Maybe. Was there a catalog, like a little pamphlet for it? I'm trying to think if I yes, saw that show. There was. Because I feel like I. That sounds familiar. Weber? Maybe. Who were who some of the artists in the show? Do you remember? I know Evie Day was in it. Mm-hmm. Evie was a year ahead of me in sculpture. Um, can't remember the other artists. But Ron Jones, Ron Jones was one of my professors mm-hmm. in sculpture. And he had mentioned my work. He was a big advocate for my work um, soon after graduate school and he had mentioned my work to Stefano Basilco yeah and um, but it wasn't until Matthew Ritchie had saw the piece and that group show mm-hmm. and he said to Stefano you need to do a studio visit with this person um, and then Stefano uh, came to the studio the makeshift studio that Andy and I had the yoga that studio yeah. <laughs> yeah and uh, and um, and it was like crazy yeah Crazy, crazy, and now I felt like that time in 1994, I don't think a lot of, as many, like, young artists were having shows right away mm-hmm. at a school. I don't think it was as 
I don't think it was as, or it wasn't seemed as common as maybe some people yeah, perceive it, it to be today. It probably wasn't as common. There wasn't that gunning for the next big, or the, the new young talent or something. You know what yeah. I mean? That became, I think in between now where it's just flooded and when we were, well, I mean, you graduated before me, but, um, you know, there was there were moments there where it it kind of changed over from, you know, the word of mouth once in a while someone younger would come up but then to a little more frequently like dealers would start going to mfa shows and just looking Mm -hmm. and then it became like let's just get the next person from that from that program or something so yeah i think that probably was rare but you were getting a pretty good recommendation you know and matthew at that point was really blowing up like he was you know right because that's when he had he had a couple shows or at least one show at Basilico. I had the little catalog for that one, too, I remember. I think he had two yeah. shows. Um, it was doing well. Like doing people very, really very well. I mean, he he was the anchor of, of, of that gallery. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I, I had, that's how I started my relationship with Stefano, who mm. was my first, the first dealer I worked with. He was really um, I felt incredibly supportive. Um, that's when I met Tony Mattelli. We were all, you know, kind of, Brian Toll was in that gallery, mm-hmm. Cheryl Donegan, and just amazing people. Um, you know, I was sort of like, I don't know what to do. This is like <laughs> kind of a dream and sort of right. really weird. Um, but it, for whatever reasons, um, the shows at that time came frequently so it felt like, um, you know, we moved out of uh, moved out of the sub sublet, and then my brother decided to move back to New York, and um, we got we split a a lease, and um, not it wasn't formally Williamsburg, but just outside of Williamsburg, and uh, the lease was split up so that there was like a live side, and then you'd walk across the hall, and there'd be a studio. So I lived there for five years, and for five years I would cross across the hall if I needed to, you know, go to the bathroom or mm-hmm. go to the kitchen, and and it just seemed like um, there was a frequency of shows for me that I just was just always working. Yeah. Um, just there was a lot. It was a lot of. Uh, it was a great place to be in. And since it happened right out the gate, pretty much, you yeah. were probably just, it's kind of like you're rolling down a hill, you just keep going, right? It, you don't even have time to assess it, you're just going no, with it. No, I didn't have time to assess it, and I, the things I would learn about my work were, I was, I was really learning about what I was doing, what mm-hmm. I was making, while I was reading about it, which was very strange. Yeah. It's like, I don't know if that's what I'm doing, you know? Like, it's kind of like, Make, reminds me of what we were talking about when someone would come in your studio and sort of drop the mic right, yeah. really hard. Right. But then if somebody does that in print, you know, it reaches so many other individuals and you're like... It's S- indirect, too. Yeah, it's like, is that what I'm doing? That's not what I'm doing. Right. Or like, or maybe I want to do that. Or like, you know, there's all these things that... Yeah. So it was a strange place to be in a place where you're developing your work still while you're also being codified yeah um, it's confusing right yeah yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I got pretty much a similar thing because I was lucky enough out of school, relatively recent mm-hmm. out of school, where I started showing. And, you know, you haven't even formulated things yet. And then people are reacting to it, which in a way is now in retrospect, it's kind of exciting to have not sort of mapped out that well. Or like, you know, over the course of working over, say, 15 years or 20 years, you, you kind of understand more about what you're doing. Even, you never really figure out what you're doing, I think. You're always exploring, but you become a little more, um, you know, it's almost like you recognize yourself or like mm-hmm. what you're doing more so because there's that time that growth and that change and you see things and when you're fresh out the gate you don't you can't understand it yet right it's just like going to school right after undergrad or you know when you're young you don't have any of that life experience you're just like learning on the job basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but there's something really exciting about that too I'm sure it's like it's kind of fresh in a way right and you're just adapting it's almost like you're just reacting more so than planning no it's true it's true a different way of working I think but at the end you're just you're working you know yeah I mean I think it's also it really pushes you know problem solving skills Mm -hmm. because it's sort of there's many many things you know you're just trying to figure out both in terms of the work but also how it needs to be made to be shipped to all these places see but you're lucky because you had that even though you started showing pretty quickly you had such an education and probably in being in Robert's studio. You know what I mean? Like nuts and bolts and stuff like that. I never, you know, I didn't know any of that. Like I never assisted anyone. So I didn't, right. I wasn't privy to any of that knowledge. Like when they sent over art handlers, I was like, what? Magic? Like people come over and pick up my stuff? Okay. <laughs> like I had no idea. You know what I mean? And like your stretchers are terrible. Just order them from this company. Oh, sure. I'll do that. You know what I mean? Didn't even think about it. Like, there's things that you just go with because right. you have no idea. And then you just learn as you go along. The thing about art schools, especially back then, they don't they didn't teach you any of that stuff. No, no. They didn't want to taint your education with like practical knowledge about living in the art world or dealing with a dealer or any of that. None you of know, that. They didn't sully your education with that stuff. It was just theory critical response you know it's all that so in a way that's good but it would have been nice to be able to navigate those waters a little bit so what did you do did you like I mean did you build friendships with other artists that were going through the same thing you seem to be and you said how are you doing it how are you solving this I want to say that I did that (laughs) but I don't I was kind of a loner I, was I mean, too. I had a core group of friends, but I didn't even really have them over that much, or they would come over and see what I was working on, but I just kind of did my thing. And I was just, you know, got married and was, you know, just, I loved being with my wife at night when she got home from work. I'd work all day. Right. And I really, and you know, and being in school seven straight years and then going to Skowhegan after that, that's a lot of people in your studio and in your ear and I just purged after Mm -hmm. that I went through a long stretch of just silence you know and being hermetic and just working which I think was good in a way to just get lost in my own work Mm -hmm. but yeah I didn't really have a lot of I mean I had some 
some mentors who had been around the block a couple of times that I would lean on here and there, but I was kind of shy at that point too, so I was less communicative and I just on the job right. learning. You make some some hiccups and mistakes, but you know it's part of life. Right. No, I agree. That's why, as you get older, you can feel getting old sucks. But one thing that's nice about it is you feel like oh, I've gained some perspective or some life experience, and there's something I don't know that feels good about that. If it didn't, then getting old would really suck. <laughs> <laughs> no redeeming quality. Right. Right. I just feel tired all the time. <laughs> Remember all nighters barely you know <laughs> it's like a totally it's a different world no it's true it's true yeah no I was in the same situation I don't I don't I think I could have done a lot better job at reaching out to sort of navigate some things that I felt I didn't understand but um but I think they you know they led me to to places that wound up being really good for me in the long yeah. term. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing, just thinking real quick, that I forgot, the social side of things I think I neglected too, where I had my core group of friends or whatever, but I wasn't ever going to openings. I wasn't making those connections, you know? I just kind of, I was lucky enough to have a gallery that would give me a solo show every year, mm-hmm. and I would just show it, you know? And I didn't really quote-unquote work it and I didn't want to and that was fine but then as I got older and I went through that hermetic period I started um I kind of rediscovered the value of like a network of friends to just talk about work and how important it is to kind of have a community of artists to Mm -hmm. to just feel like connected to and that's been a really rewarding recent part of my I mean it's been a while now but you know I went through a long stretch where I didn't really talk to many people mm-hmm. and um, and that was kind of a mistake in retrospect I think because not just making connections or being social to push to work but it's just the feeling enriched by you know talking to other artists a lot and hanging out and seeing their work and doing studio visits and all that stuff I think it's really important you know no I think so too and I think I, I also was didn't do as much of that as I should have. Um, I feel like I, I had a lot of that when I lived temporarily in Richmond, when I went back and they asked me to teach. But um, And then when I came back into Brooklyn, I just was teaching. I was, I was really living for um, Penn Station. Mm-hmm. So I just felt like really disconnected, um, really over over overworked to just try to get my paychecks. Yeah. That, and then I came here. So I I kind of feel like I, really. That that's a big that's a big, um, like when I look back, I'm like, a lot of the things that I felt like I I I had a lot of anxiety or wondering if did I handle that right or could I have done that a little bit differently I always think if I had built a stronger community you know um, questions like that could have probably just been hashed out over different conversations with friends yeah you know yeah 
You know, you kind of make things so big mm-hmm. when you're, you don't have a lot of other people to bounce off of, which I think is so important. Yeah, I think... Well, it must be so different for younger artists today, too, because even if they don't necessarily... I, I think it's, it must be so much harder to just be a hermit or to be reclusive or to not share... Like the enti- even if it's superficial, the entire motive operandus is like, you know, to share everything. So, you know, even if you don't have a community of people or you're not doing the studio visits, it's like, oh, in my virtual world, right. I have mm-hmm. all these friends and I feel connected. So I wonder how that changes things. But I don't have to worry about that because I'm not coming of age at this t- time mm-hmm. period. I can't imagine, you know. But having a kid and thinking about growing up with all this stuff, it's a whole different, you know, kind of society in a way. The funny thing, though, is that a lot of my students, they'll say how while they are, while they do share a lot, they don't share specific things like they're not sharing everything right right and some of them feel very connected to a community and our friends but some don't at all yeah you know so it's sort of like it's the same thing pretty much but just i just feel like there's like there's dual skills to to build and work on together like the the skills of what you connect to, what you share with publicly, but then also like how you go out of your way to, you know, just say hi to somebody that you might not know or that you feel like, I don't know, it's just, I feel like there's something about connectivity that I still, I still feel like there's still a need for connectedness, togetherness, Definitely. in body. Right. You well, know? I mean, yeah. And I, then maybe it's just I sound, maybe I'm just old. Um, it's like a nostalgia. But I, I do think that. I, I, feel like, I feel like there's something about when the classroom comes together, you know, and yeah. by, by arrangement of... D- degree audit you've got your all these bodies have been pushed together in one space mm-hmm. and then as you know over the course of the semester especially how you can foster that atmosphere mm-hmm. right that atmosphere that that your teacher uh, provided for you and my teacher provided for me yeah. um, there can be a real transformation on the connectedness that that group experiences yeah you know and so it's just, I think that's, I think that is one of the most fascinating building methods I've ever experienced in my whole life. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's real. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, that's why I don't do these conversations over Skype or over, you know what I mean, the phone, or I mm-hmm. think it's important to be able to sit down and talk to people and right. have like a real shared experience, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that gets kind of, you know, shelved these days with the importance of all this other kind of sharing, quote unquote, and, mm-hmm. you know, 
it's just, or maybe it's just novelty now at this point to be able to just, you know, talk to people and, and not have it not be rushed, you know, and to be able to take some time mm-hmm. is like a luxury. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, I think so. I love being able to do that. But so let's, to take it into now, I mean, you have a big studio here. I do. You're making a lot of work and you just, you have a show up now, which is up for a little. A few more days. A few more days. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk seven. about that work and the show? And uh, the show I have at Costera Projects in Red Hook is called Patchwork, and um, uh, my studio uh, is in you know middle of central Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and I have a twenty eight hundred square foot studio. I pay six hundred seventy five dollars for it. That's amazing, and, right? You know when I I had my interview here. As you know, they're like three-day affairs. Mm-hmm. I had a flip phone that... <laughs> in, Not the it, date when that happened. <laughs> uh, it was 2007. Um, so I probably was behind the curve on... You held on to the flip phone longer than yeah. than others? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, representing the flip phone. <laughs> in between my interview, my phone, the flip whatever was the thing that makes it flip broke and I had basically two pieces and I went to the gift shop at the Nittany Lion Inn and I asked if I could use some scotch tape to keep it together mm-hmm. so I really needed this job I was like I need to, I need this job and but um, so an asset of it was that I I mean a deficit is being so far away from even though I didn't really tap into a lot of the social things that New York City offered or, or the boroughs offered, mm-hmm. New York, somebody who had, I think, moved around so much as a young person, never really feeling like they fit in, there's something about New York being structured for a moving body. Mm-hmm. Um, versus a moving car or moving vehicle and being able to be both introverted and walk through so many people and see so many things that in another in another city or another instance or situation you'd really have to be super extroverted to get that kind of stimuli right it it it, it was it's like if it's at home the it's energy in, of yeah. new york i feel like I am a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving away from New York to here was incredibly hard. Yeah. Uh, really, really difficult. But the, the benefit of it was that I had this massive studio. Yeah. And I could finally, I could finally get started back on my work. Right. Because I was just teaching everywhere and I was just, I don't know, every time I'd have to come back from whether it was RISD or you know, overnight in Tyler. It seems like I had to readjust in Brooklyn and it wasn't working out for me. It's not easy. No, I don't know how, I don't, you know, you and Rudy and Stephanie do it, you know, with all the things you have to do here and then you go back to your families and it's it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. so the de- the benefit was I had this 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 big space and it was time to 
it was time to get connected back to to being a maker yeah and um it took a long time i worked i worked on many different projects for a really long time um so patchwork was really built from i had all these molds from about 10 years and when you make a when you make a flexible mold you usually make a mother mold and they're they're basically like significant three-dimensional objects that don't really have that much of a purpose after the cast is made. So it's sort of like, what do you do? Do you continue to store it? Do you throw it out? It's a lot of time, it's a lot of space. So I threw away all my mother molds, but I kept all my rubber skins. And when I'm teaching, I have a hard time um, being productive. That's something that I really admire about you. You're very productive when you're on your teaching days. Um, So I was like, I was feeling like my modeling hand, my clay modeling hand, was doing the same contours, and I wanted to change that. So I just started doing these collage studies. I would make, I would get, um, you know, high fashion magazines where there was less about layouts of clothes flat, but more like big spreads, kind of like what my my friend Andy lays out Mm -hmm. does. And I would just start like cutting out things like in extreme weird detail and make these strange portraits from from different textures that I that I was seeing in the photograph, but that I normally wouldn't carve. And that really helped me to see a different hybrid face. So that allowed me to think of like, well, this is a piece of paper. Maybe I can make my rubber skins like paper. Mm-hmm. So what do I do? Do I cut the rubber molds into smaller units so those curves are flattened? And so what I decided to do is I researched to get a clay that could be melted down um, and brushed in. And I would um, I would brush into all my old molds, and then I would just basically I would back it with cheesecloth, which allowed me to get a a, a clay wall thickness less than a quarter inch with extreme detail and I could cut through it with a scissor just like I was collaging those magazine clippings Mm -hmm. so I might have a mold from um, 2003 that was of whatever but I would just suture out a specific kind of texture and then I would basically take that and I would start building these hybrid shape these hybrid uh, portraits and I would put them together with quilting pins uh, I had just finished a long-term sewing uh, a wearable, and I was sewing a lot. Mm-hmm. So I took that mentality, and I put these really fragile clay casts together with quilting pins, and I was thinking about how, in a lot of my work, I'm mashing different, different references. Um, and I just sort of made a comparison with many different types of patchworking. Um, and so... Um, and most of my early work was all built from many different materials uh, colliding together. And that's what I would see for like nine, uh, 85% of the duration of the object's build. But at the end, I would skim coat it, I would paint it, and make everything super smooth, almost as if it looked kind of like a, you know, an amateur Jeff Koons. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so no one would see that. They'd see the, the smooth shell. 
but I was seeing all of the all of the fucked upness. Yeah. So with this work, I wanted to mash the hard, the shell, like the, you know, the mashed, candy coated, obsessively finished hard shell with the stuff that came from the inside. And I also would sew things. So uh, patchwork, it interlaces um, the f- a finished, a finished um, part with a raw foam part with a highly uh, tailored textile that runs through both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been sewing, so I made a, I started uh, collecting clothes and um, and I made you know my first large uh, quilt for the show too, um, and it was just a way for me to. It's basically the same way I've been building the whole time, but it's uh, m- much more um, um, much more vulnerable. Yeah, exciting to show that. Uh yeah. I mean, I think so. Yeah. Uh, it's exciting. It's exciting to put a reset or a public reset on what some people might think my process is. Yeah. Because this work really reveals how they are built. It doesn't hide it right. at the end, which the earlier work did. I think the process is part of the, yes. the end piece. I mean, it always is, but it's more evident. Very much so. Did you send an invite to Spaith? <laughs> right, right. It, it's, it's ironic now that I really could sell the Mr. Fezziwitz head. Sewing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so people might not be able to catch that show before they hear mm-hmm. this. But um, how else can they see your work? Do you have online presence? Well, yeah, I have a website, mm-hmm. um, and um, I have a video project up at Syndicate in Baltimore uh, now, which is that wearable. It was a 10-layer wearable mm-hmm. made from 10 years of my drawings that were cut up and then retraced on muslin fabric. And then I performed in the, that garment and then that garment. And then in, in Final Cut, we basically we, um, we spliced it in four different ways so it dissolved my anatomy. So the, the, um, the garment makes these weird kaleidoscopic patterns. So that's up, and then I'll have a show at Smack Mellon. Um, oh, nice! In uh, January nineteen, uh, in the in the bigger space. So I'm working on that. So I don't that's know. Great. People can just see stuff online too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I don't have a presence like I did when I was younger. Um, you know, I'm, I have a different kind of life. I feel like my life now is. I have a connection to teaching that probably isn't very um, I I feel like teaching is takes so much of my time it's so it's so fascinating being in front of students when they start to like build up their creative confidence mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like it's a—it's just a really—it's a really unusual 
space. It's like yeah. you're present, you're like you're investing. Um, you're connected, but ev almost everything you're doing is to help that person have autonomy, mm -hmm. have confidence, and go away. Right, with a lot of people. And yeah. it just keeps turning over. Yeah. And you just feel, and, and, and this kind of teaching is so different than, you know, a lecture class of 2,000 people where you're just going over topics. I mean, you really, I don't people who don't teach that, I don't think they understand how much it takes out of you and the, how much that you're giving. It's almost like you're going to do studio visits with your friends all the time, over and over, you know, and you're just constant. It's re I think it's really good mentally. Like, it keeps you really focused and sharp and thoughtful. And, you know, it's impossible for me to tell people things over and over and go back to my studio and not think about those things whenever I'm working. So I think it's really valuable in that sense. But it is... It's exhausting. It, it takes a lot out of you it in does. a good way. It's it, rewarding, it, but it, it is very rewarding. It's demanding. It's very demanding. It's very. Your mind has to be very elastic, and um, there'll be things that will that will come at you that that you're not prepared for. Mm -hmm. There can be a day that I'll be having conversations with students, and it we will be talking about um, their lives or their ideas in relationship to. Uh, race, or sexual assault, mm -hmm. things that have happened in their in their lives that you you are not only talking about in our project. You're, right. you're connecting with you're connecting with these people on much deeper levels, and so there's just so much that um, there's so so much that goes into wanting to advocate uh, for that that confidence yeah. to to come through. Right. in so many ways and um, and also you know as somebody who whose parent you know whose family is from a blue collar uh, you know my grandparents mm -hmm. you know worked in the dry cleaner and uh, waited tables that you're like I'm getting paid for this job right. so you, you know I just feel like there's some kind of I feel like my identity when I was younger was very much about how much I showed, where I showed, um, and and what would come from that. And I think that has brought me a lot of good, good things. But now my identity is very much like also about being um, an educator. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. Mm -hmm. um, but you're still showing, and I, people are still engaging in your work. So it's it's not like that goes away. Yeah, you know? yeah. Maybe a different pace, but. It is a different pace. I just, I'm just sort of like, you know, it's interesting just to think of like, just the overall energy. But yeah, I just, I just love my students. They're just so, like, we're so lucky. Yeah. And that's the life of an artist. It's like, it's cyclical. It's like, there's going to be times where things are busy and there's going to be times when things are slow. And really, at the end of the day, like, we wake up. And we say, I'm going to go make stuff. No right. matter where that goes, how often it goes, what people say about it, what people don't say about it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. At the mm -hmm. end of the day, it's like, am I going to make things? And am I going to push myself and, and be, you know, engaged in that activity? And that's what we do, you know. So the, all the other stuff is kind of, you know, around that. But really, that's the core of it, I think.
Uh, absolutely, and especially if you want if you want to have a relationship with it over time. Yeah, that's got to be the core, the core question. Right. Yeah, there's not that many people who are just you know propped up and it's everything supplied for them or it's you know a smooth path the entire way. You know, so I think it's just part of it. It's part of the process. But it's been really cool to talk to you for thank you Ryan this is so generous of you it's like really nice to actually just be able to sit down for a while and talk because we are always so busy and running here and there and doing that so so thanks so much for taking out the time thank you very much thanks studio visit images at soundandvisionpodcast.com and you can find out more about my own work at paintchanger.com